Welcome to the Anxiety at Work podcast. I'm Chester Elton, and this is my co-author and dear friend, Adrian Gostick. Hi, everybody. We hope the time you spend with us is going to help remove the stigma of anxiety and mental health in the workplace and your personal life. We invite experts from the world of work and life to give us ideas and, most importantly, tools to deal with anxiety in our world. And the podcast is brought to you by one of our wonderful sponsors, Life Guides. We want to thank Life Guides. They're a peer-to-peer community that helps people navigate through their day-to-day stressors by providing a place of empathy, listening, wisdom, and support with a guide who has walked in your shoes, experiencing the same challenges of life that you have. Go to lifeguides.com forward slash schedule a demo and add the code HEALTHY2021 in the text box and you'll get two free months of free service. What a deal. Oh, we all love free. Uh, We also want to send a big thanks to our sponsor, Go Happy Hub, the most inclusive and timely way to communicate and engage directly with your frontline people, your employees, your candidates with a 95% plus open rates. With Go Happy Hub, you can send text messages directly from corporate and enable permissions for your frontline leaders to communicate with their team members. They can send notes of gratitude, logistical updates, referral opportunities, LTOs, New hire introductions, learning content, celebrations, and more. You easily can get the right message to the right people. And now, if you tell them Adrian sent you, or maybe even Chester, you get a <laughs> 60-day free trial. That's Go Happy Hub. Yeah, take advantage of those great offers. We've got our business out of the way, and now we want to introduce you to our guest. I wish we'd recorded the pre-record. We've had more fun with Andy than we probably should have been allowed he is our new friend. His name is Andy Holmes. He comes from uh, comes to us from the UK today. Andy is the global head of well-being for Reckitt, a UK-based consumer goods company with over forty thousand employees. You know Reckitt as the makers of Clearasil. Boy, did I use a lot of that when I was a teenager. Lysol, Airwick, and many other products you use every day. Andy is responsible for the design, development, provision of, and access to well-being for the entire global workforce. Andy, welcome to our humble podcast. Hey, thanks for joining the show, Andy. Uh, just so everybody knows, Andy and I were on a panel together a little while back, and and it was so fun that I knew we had to have him on the podcast. Um, so we want to get to know you first. Tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, fellow ice hockey player, we just call it hockey, but um, <laughs> in England we have to call it ice hockey um, because there's other kinds of hockey there. And then, uh, and then you know, tell us a little about your business background, how you got to this really fascinating role at Reckitt. Yeah, yeah, cool. So no, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on. And you know, likewise, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. It was great to meet you last time. And uh, I'm hoping that Chester doesn't take the experience too much. Um, <laughs> but, um, I'm from, uh, you know, from the north of England, a little, uh, a little city called Durham, which is uh, near Newcastle. So it's, uh, it's kind of like Game of Thrones. It's north of the wall, it gets very cold up that way. So um, yeah, I was born there, three year old, um, went to my best friend's big brother's birthday party, started skating and started playing hockey from that point on. Um, I was very fortunate in that, you know, I got to travel the world, played England GB, Captain GB, um, and got to experience some incredible things. But I think that for me was what catalyzed the start of my fascination with where we are now. Um, people, human interactions, what drives behavior, and what I call the why behind the what. You know, so many people are familiar with what we see on a day-to-day basis, what we feel, what we experience, but we don't always question why. I think my curiosity really came from 
a real diversity of experiences. You know, I was very fortunate, as I say, I got to travel the world. Um, I got to, uh, you know, live in South Africa. I lived there for two years. I lived in Australia for five years. I've worked in 35 countries, uh, working with GSK and with, uh, and with Reckitt. And I think the, the one thing that I learned through that whole period was that people and interpersonal like, dynamics do run the world. You know, even though we're getting more and more advanced in terms of technology, we're starting to pursue things like digital, um, you know, operational efficiencies. Ultimately, it is still the human person that, uh, you know, that automates all of that, that influences, that programs it. And it's us as humans and, you know, communities who, who look to benefit from that. So I think the thing for me that I also realized going through that, you know, incredible range of experiences is that the reason that people fail to succeed or feel fulfilled is very rarely because they are not capable. It's because they lack the capacity to be consistently capable. And what I mean by that is that capacity from a well-being perspective, but capacity and consistency from a mental health and well-being perspective as well. Um, you know, so people can show up, you can have all the skills and the knowledge that you need in the world. But if at that point, at that moment in time, in that environment with those people, you can't get everything that you've got together in the right space, you aren't going to succeed. And you're going to walk away from whatever that experience was feeling unfulfilled. And that for me is where the magic of being human really comes in. Yeah, so, so insightful. And, you know, you're traveling the world and whatnot gave you that perspective that isn't it interesting that no matter where you are, people are people, right? You, you, there are some cultural differences. And yet when it's all said and done, you know, people are people, aren't they? No, absolutely, Chester. I mean, you know, people are people. And I think the one thing that I, I would sort of probably, I, I suppose, gain from my experiences across so many different countries is that people are people. It's the stories that we tell ourselves that change with culture. You know, so we, we will tell ourselves stories based on what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, based on where we come from, what our cultural background suggests is acceptable. But ultimately, we're, we're all fueled by the same sort of things. We're wired the same way. Our biology doesn't differ a huge amount. The biggest thing for me is it's, it's our perception of our fit within our environment, which dictates the moods and the emotions that we experience. Um, you know, so for me, when I see people who fail to feel fulfilled, it typically comes from a place of either feeling anxious or a lack of psychological safety or just feeling kind of like you're a square peg in a round hole, whatever that might look like in that particular environment or, or community that you're, uh, you're actually in at that point in time. Yeah. So let, let's go to the macro level and, and talk about what you're seeing there, uh, the good and the bad, right? Uh, what have you seen organizations around the world doing to, to improve that conversation around well-being and anxiety at work over the last year or two in particular. Uh, what's working well in organizations and, and how, are, how are you helping to change the narrative where you are around anxiety, well-being and mental health? Yes. Yeah, so, so I think it, it's a really, really interesting space. And I used a, yeah. a fairly provocative term last week at a conference I was speaking at. But I think when you say what are organizations doing a ton, um, what is that resulting in? An awful lot of noise. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest reflection that I have is that through this, through this experience of COVID and through lockdowns and everything else, we've lost a lot of the things that really enable us to feel human, to feel alive, to feel connected to our environment and the world in which we live. Um, we lost control a lot of, the of a lot of the mechanisms and the levers that we're used to pulling individually or collectively as part of a community that would help us to understand, uh, I guess, as a barometer 
our levels of psychological safety or fit or comfort or, or satisfaction or fulfillment. Um, and what we've done at the same time is organizations have approached this saying, well, we need to do something. We're not really sure what that something is. So we're going to do a lot of stuff. <laughs> and what that's created is a lot of noise, a lot of complexity, a lot of confusion, um, and not a lot of progress from my perspective. Um, we're relying on individuals who are already, you know, struggling with the environment around them, who are already under-resourced from a well-being perspective, to make sense of narratives around DNI, around race, around, you know, behavior, around well-being, around culture, around performance, around, you know, politics. We're relying on that one individual who is already struggling to make sense of the world to then take on board all of these new narratives, these initiatives, these implementations, these deployments and try and figure out how does this fit together? What does it mean to me? How does it help me? And what on earth should I do with it? So for me, I think the well-being space has got incredibly complex through good intent, but we've got to a point where we've created an awful lot of noise on top of what is already a set, very saturated world for our, you know, our little kind of homo sapien brains to try and process day to day. So in terms of what's working well, for me, I think it's where we try and focus on being human so be more human rather than human being rather than human doing. Um, and in doing that, try and focus on what is it that makes us different as a species? What is it that makes us unique and how do we work with that rather than against it? You know, we're not robots. We're not machines. We're human beings for all of our flaws and all of our upsides. We are human beings. And I think the organizations who are recognizing that and trying to pull all of their different interventions and stories and initiatives into one narrative to help the one individual understand it and help navigate it. Those are the ones that are actually starting to make some real headway. Well, this is you know fascinating because I just saw a survey this past week that came out that well, I think it was somewhere around 67% of employees don't think their companies will, will keep up with the mental health put in place over the pandemic. Probably no surprise to you. So, so I want to take it up to maybe the C-suite because you, you counsel uh, C-suite. You, you talk to people at, in school. Um, what we see in our consulting is, look, everybody works till till we miss our numbers. So uh, it gets you know chucked off you know off the off the train. We get this to be seen as more than nice to have this idea of well. No, Adrian, I think you make uh, you know make a fantastic point, and it's. What I've observed, and as I say, I, I've been really trying the last sort of six months to get out to conferences, whether they're virtual, to speak and to listen to keynotes. Um, and the observation I would make is that I think nine, 12 months ago, a lot of organizations did what they felt was corporately responsible as regards people. Um, so putting in well-being, you know, roles, having that focus, putting initiatives in place. What I'm seeing the transition to now is that a lot of those very same organizations are now doing what's not corporately responsible, what's financially viable. So maybe they haven't realized their businesses pick up in the way that they thought they would. Maybe, um, you know, business has got tighter or they've lost talent. And what's happened is people have started to move away from well-being and look back at, you know, what are the things we get immediate return on? And the reality is in the well-being space, you do not get immediate returns. This is a long-term bet. But it's a long-term bet based on something we're all very familiar with, which, again, as I say, is being human. So, you know, I think that the big transition point for me is if well-being and mental health is going to sustain in an organization and as, as, as opposed to being something that people feel corporately responsible for, 
or that people feel is financially viable, we have to give it some teeth. And, and that sounds terrible. I, I recognize when you come at it from a mental health perspective, because this is people we're dealing with. But if it's going to sustain in an organization that has to deliver to shareholders, that have to hit performance figures, then it has to have teeth. There has to be a performance or an opportunity upside to it as well. So one of the big bits that, that we've been working on in terms of, and what I've done is to try and change the narrative, is instead of talking about just anxiety and just mental health, it's how do you stretch that? So we start, start to, to talk about mental energy. So some days everyone will be up, some days other people will be down. But it's about the day to day. So how do you take it rather than mental health and anxiety being something that you deal with and intervene on when it becomes acute? How do you actually deal with it on the chronic everyday basis? Because that's where it really becomes powerful. How does that become woven into leadership behaviors? How does that become in, woven into the fabric of daily cadence, how the meetings are set up, et cetera, et cetera. But also on top of that, how do you ensure that at the same time it gives a performance upside? So what we're looking at is how does well-being not only influence you know, mental health and mindset, but how does it improve cognitive focus? How does it improve efficiency? How does it improve fulfillment and feelings of well-being and engagement? Because they're ultimately going to be part of that war on talent that we keep hearing a lot about as well. So is that where you're really hoping the future of the conversation about mental health will be? Uh, more specific accountability rather than, as you said, all the noise, but it gets really specific. Is, is, is that the future of the conversation, do you think? Is that where you're hoping it's going to go? I think for me that the future of the conversation, I mean, if you were to say to me, what's the future of well-being? It's when well-being is no longer a thing. Right. You know, <laughs> it, it has to just be what we do. It's who we are, how we operate, how we exist. I think from a mental health perspective, I think there's a, there's a huge stigma, and we're all aware of this, around mental health. You know, some places you use the, you know, the, the term mental health or things like anxiety or depression, and, and people get very nervous around that. You know, they, they clam up. They don't know how to talk about it. Um, maybe some people don't want to be associated with it. Maybe other people, I don't have that. That's not my, my, my label. Therefore, that's not me. I think the future of mental health is how do we stretch mental health to be something everyone deserves to have as opposed to something that unfortunately the few don't have. So right. I think, how do you, you know, look at it as a real upside as a, as a almost as a, as a stake at the table, as opposed to being, how do we deal with people when they fall off the wagon? Because that's not really what it's about. Mental health is not something that deteriorates overnight. Anxiety is not something that happens overnight. It's a chronic deterioration that happens as people, you know, fail to recognize the symptoms in themselves and they fail to have the support around them that helps them to make them aware of the symptoms that they should be concerned about. You know, it's so interesting as you're talking, it reminds me of this uh, poem that my grandfather uh, came up with. He's from um, Dorchester, England. And it was, it was all about a, a community where they had a park on a cliff and people kept falling off the cliff. So the, the, the town got together and said, well, do we build a fence or do we buy an ambulance? <laughs> right? <laughs> so an ambulance for the people that have fallen over a fence to prevent it. And that's kind of what you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. if we build a fence, we, we won't need to have this, you know, rush in when people have fallen off the wagon. I always I love that story uh, because the, the <laughs> I've, I've got a vision of it. And it's, yeah. But it's I think the interesting with, thing with that, though, Chester, is that, you know, if you were to ask most most organizations, every organization will have an EAP, an employee assistance right. program. Right. Every organization or some organizations will have mental health first aiders. If you were to ask them, 
What's the uptake like on EAP and mental health first aiders? Most organizations will probably also tell you it's, it's close to zero. Yeah. Um, what we've done is we partnered with uh, an organization called Heart of My Sleeve, and their whole focus is around real lives, real mates, real conversations. They're an Australian-based uh, organization, um, and they've kind of got rid of the hierarchy. So instead of it being about training managers to deal with your employees, it's about how do you just be a real mate to someone? That's yeah. it. That's it flat. Um, how do you ensure that those conversations happen at an earlier point on a more day-to-day basis with a lot more authenticity? So then how do you, and what that allows you to do, if you look at the normal distribution curve, is instead of dealing with the 15% of people who might think or worry that they've got some sort of mental health problem, you actually start to tap into that 60% in the middle of the bell curve that don't think they've got a problem, but are also probably a bit lethargic and a bit of a funk about day-to-day life or feeling a little bit unfulfilled. It's a bit like, you know, we were talking about comedians, you know, before we came on, uh, on air. Comedians do a phenomenal job of creating shared experiences that everyone can connect and bond with. And I think from a mental health perspective, it's not about having conversations that few people have experienced. It's about having conversations about scenarios that the majority have experienced and would like to not experience again. And, you know, we love, you know, what you're doing there with your folks. And of course, Life Guides, our, our sponsor, does the, you know, very similar work with putting mm. you in touch with somebody who's gone through the same experience. Uh, you, you know, you look at uh, soldiers coming back from war, they find the best people they speak to are not therapists, but, you know, fellow fellow yeah. soldiers who've been in the trenches. So so I, we want to get really specific now, Andy. We want to turn to Reckitt and want want to think about what you're doing and learn from you. We, you know, we, we love your mission, by the way, to protect, heal, and nurture in the relentless pursuit of a cleaner and healthier world. It's pretty hard to be thoughtless and mean to your employees when you've got a mission like that, right? Yeah. yeah. So what's your organization doing to, to fulfill that promise to your people to, to care for their well-being? No, absolutely. And look, you know, I, I believe in being very authentic. You know, I, I, I'm not going to sort of sit here and say, you know what, we've got it nailed. We're, we're doing everything perfectly because, you know, we, we're still going through a period. Everyone's had a tough time. And, you know, I think one of the things about Record is that it's driven and fueled by individuals who have a real sense of purpose and a passion to move things forward, which means we have a lot of people who are really invested and will push themselves probably, you know, further than others might. Um, you know, so we have a real duty of care to our employees because we, it's a bit like having a high performance athlete. You know, you know that they can run fast, but you also know that they're fairly highly tuned and fairly prone to injuries. So we need to be really careful with our, with our talent and our workforce. Um, in terms of what we're doing, as I say, we're trying to make the conversation more about day to day rather than interventions and statements. So one of the things we've kind of pulled back from, and it may well be that we've been seen as a little quieter in this space, is we've stopped making external statements and pledges about what we're doing. We're, we're trying to let it live and breathe through the day-to-day experiences that people go through, through the, the experiences that they have with their managers and their peers and their colleagues in terms of support. Um, we've recalibrated our leadership behaviors. So one of our, our four leadership behaviors is care. Um, so it's really putting it kind of front and center. It's changing the narrative. It's changing the language. But it also changes the expectations that we have on not just what leaders do, but how they go about doing it, how they interact with, how they support their people, but also how they drive outperformance as well. So, you know, people come to Reckitt, people want to perform. We have a duty of care to make sure that they don't underperform themselves in trying to outperform the business. So I think that's, that's a real key notion to sort of put in place. Um, we're starting to look at things like um, daily cadence and circadian rhythms. 
um, because a lot of the stuff that we do in the way that we operate on a day-to-day basis is really at odds with what our bodies are trying to do day-to-day. You know, we're, we're made to have high cortisol early in the mornings, which is our deep focus, our problem solving, our deep thinking phase. We're built to be more collaborative later in the day. Um, but so often people will turn up, you do your emails first thing. It's not a great use of your peak performance time. And then we expect people, you know, people try and work late in the evening trying to do problem solving or writing decks or whatever it might be. So what we're trying to do is educate people through experiences and through coaching, not through training, but through coaching. We're trying to re-educate people as to how do you start to balance what you set out to achieve and do with who you are and how you want to be. So little notions like, you know, instead of just having a to-do list on a daily basis, what's your to-be list? When you get to the end of your day and you tick your list off, have you done everything you need to do? And have you managed to be the person that you set out to be? So a simple example of that is, you know, if I was to say to you, what do you want to be when you get to the end of the day? Are you going to be fulfilled? Are you going to be proud? Are you going to be successful? Are you going to be disenchanted? Are you going to be exhausted? It puts a very different lens on who shows up and what success looks like day to day. So little changes like that, but then also underpinning that with the way that we expect people to to lead and to show up and to behave day to day, that's, I think, where the secret lies, not in interventions or patches or statements that we can make externally. See, I told you he'd be good, Jess. You know, and, and you said no. And I said, no, no, give him a chance. It's good stuff, right? You had me at ice hockey. Yeah, there you go. But, uh, you know, Andy, uh, it, it is so interesting because when you say, how do you want to be at the end of the day? It really struck me because sometimes we say, I'm exhausted. Oh, that was a good day. You yeah. know, I gave it all. I'm exhausted. Instead of, gee, that was great. I'm exhilarated. I'm excited. Wait, you know, but that- is it, can, I, can I just jump on that, Chester? Because it's something that we had a conversation about, not you and I, but me, me and uh, the organization about a year ago when we were looking at who we would partner with on this sort of stuff. Um, and we had a lot of people who said, you know, you know, on a real high and they were in the zone and they were buzzing and they felt efficient. And I think when you ask people, a lot of people say, you know, I'm exhausted, but I, you know, I've had a really productive day. What they've done is actually been surfing a cortisol wave the whole day long. And you know what happens when you come to a cortisol wave that ends at the end of the day? You get a really bad <laughs> night's sleep. And after yeah. a really bad night's sleep, you get a really flat cortisol curve the next morning, which means this then starts to fuel a, a downward cycle in the individual, but also the impact they have on the, the environment around them. So if I can just sort of extrapolate that a little bit more. If someone works late in the day, they peak their cortisol late in the day, you suppress your sleep drive, which means you get a poor night's sleep, you don't recover properly. The first thing that suffers when you don't sleep well is you lose the ability to emotionally regulate yourself, which means you're not conscious of your mood, which means you have a raised threat perception. So you will see, you know, it's clinically proven that people who are tired will perceive a neutral face as negative or threatening, which then means the behaviors who put it back into the organization the next day are are on the slant of negative. By default, you create bias and a lack of psychological safety for the people around you. So these aren't, you know, they're they're funny things. And yeah, if someone wants to do a PowerPoint deck late at night, fine. But they have really serious ramifications when you've got tens of thousands of people doing the same thing. So our challenge is how do we get people into recovery mode before they get to bed? So little things like if you're going to do a PowerPoint deck, how can we get people to draw it on paper so you don't peak your cortisol? And then do the deep thought of actually creating the deck the next morning when you do have your cortisol. 
So how do you work with your body to avoid compromising yourself, but to ensure that you show up as a balanced and regulated human being the next day? Because when we talk about things like anxiety, it typically comes from a, a, an inability to regulate or finish regulating the emotions that we're feeling. So other than that, it's great. <laughs> other than all of that, being exhausted is great. Yeah. yeah. You know, really fascinating. And, and I love the way that you've gone clinical on it as well. So it's not just a, a story or an emotion. You say, look, we've done the research. This is what's going to yeah. happen. You know, Adrian and I often talk about, you know, send your people home happy. At the end of the day, if you're happy, that ripple effect, you know, through your family, through your sleep and so on is, is dramatic. Yeah. Well, let, let's jump into the global piece because you've lived yeah. in a lot of different countries and, and you know, you see the differences in traditions and stories and so on. Also, generationally, what kind of insights have, uh, can you bring around anxiety and well-being generationally and, and even globally in the different traditions? Are there some nuances that you've seen that you could share with our listeners? No, no, def definitely. I, I think that the one thing that I would... Um... I would say is, it, it, I suppose, a, a segue. One of the things that I've been looking at is what I call flow state meetings. Um, you know, so we spend a lot of our days in meetings. Um, if you consider flow state, which is well of a lot of athletes, you'll, you'll have heard that phrase used. It's where you have high challenge and high skill. And there's a sweet spot in the middle where you get into a flow state. You know, you, you put a set of Lego bricks in front of a kid and they're in flow state within two minutes. Um, you know, you can shout them for dinner. They never come, you know, all the rest of it. Um, but... If you're in a flow, if you're in a meeting where you've got a high challenge and a lack of skill, you create anxiety. So if you've got people who are high skill, sorry, high challenge, low skill, they'll be anxious. If you've got people in the same meeting who are high skill, low challenge, they're going to be bored. Now you look at that, if you've got people who are spending 10 hours a day in meetings like that, it's not a great place for people to be. Sometimes you're going to be bored, sometimes you're anxious. Either way, you're unfulfilled. Now when you start to look generationally, there's a big disconnect in terms of formative experiences. So what we see at a sort of a, at a board level and a board minus one, minus two, a lot of the people who grew up in that space grew up where, you know, the, the formative ages between sort of 12 and 15, you know, where the world was a fairly secure place. You know, you could leave your BMX on the drive and it was okay. Um, you know, investments tended to pay off. The housing market tended to kind of creep up gradually and you did okay. If you look at a lot of the people who are kind of below that level now in organizations, they've grown up in a world that, or a VUCA world, as we often hear it called, but they've grown up in a world where nothing's safe, nothing's secure, and they're probably not going to achieve the security in terms of financial, financial acquisition that their predecessors had. So you're already starting with those generations from a place where they just don't have the same levels of control over their world that the people who lead them do. So there's definitely a disconnect there because as business gets tough, as businesses are looking to rebound and they're not seeing the rebound as quickly, you have senior, senior leaders at the top who are pulling their strings from a place of control and comfort. But you have people lower down who don't have those strappings or those securities, but also feel that they're in a state of flux. It's what they've grown up in. You know, so you have very different dynamics at play in terms of what motivates them but also their expectations and that what stresses them as well. You know, we've had a, a situation across the world where we've got graduates who are maybe sharing houses with or flats with five or six other people, and they're all fighting to get the dining room table to do a teleconference. But then you've got a very senior leader who's got their own home with a, you know, a purpose-built office at the end of the garden or whatever else it might be. 
And those dynamics make the same day and the same meeting incredibly different. So, you know, the anxiety that that can cause is very different. The other thing that we've noticed is that people who've been in organizations longer have a better network. So they, they don't need that same sort of reassurance. They don't need that same sort of those same reference points to give them psychological safety. People who've either joined and are younger in their careers or have joined during lockdown, they haven't had the chance to make those networks, to build those circle of, circles of influence, to, to create those barometers and those sensors that help them to understand when am I safe, when am I not. So if you look at a very basic level, if an individual has something they disagree with in a meeting or an individual has you know, a, a task they have to do late at night and they may choose or feel that they don't want to or don't, shouldn't have to do either of those things, they're then left with a choice of, well, do I put myself out there and risk that I'm throwing a pebble into a pond and I don't know what the ripple's going to be? Or do I just keep it to myself and just button down the hatches and just keep going? And I think that for me is where I'm seeing a lot of the anxiety come from is that people just don't have those frames of reference anymore, um, especially the younger generations without the networks, the frames of reference that help them to understand when am I safe, when am I secure, when can I stop worrying? And one thing we know about our wonderful human brains is that suppression of emotion is pretty much the most exhausting thing our brains can do on a day-to-day -day basis. So your executive brain can keep operating, but your energy and your cycle, your, your cognitive reserves are being absolutely drained by trying to suppress these emotions and just try and keep things on a level. Uh, Andy, this has just been just terrific. I've, I, I am actually, we're done because I am no, have no more room <laughs> to write notes on my uh, pad here. So I ran out of ink. I, yeah, I, I, this has just, just been awesome, Andy. I, we need to have you back, obviously. But so uh, uh, I'd love to come back, but can oh, I come to good. Utah? Because I don't want to go to, you know, no, who'd want to go to New Jersey? Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> 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 hey, let's wrap up now. And uh, our time, unfortunately, is 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 over. But give us give us some thoughts, Andy, if one or two things you'd want our listeners to take away from all the work you have done on wellness over the last few years. What would you want us to take away? I, I think for me that the biggest thing we can hope to achieve in this space is self-awareness. You know, I think, you know, a, a lot of there's a lot of data, you know, whether it's Garmin's or Fitbit's or Apple Watches or everything else, which will give you stats and, and data. The biggest thing you need to have is self-awareness and self-insight. Because if you have that, then you can start to self-regulate. If you can self-regulate, then you can start to feel more fit with your environment. So a lot of where you know, the challenge comes from is that we try to, I suppose, get our fulfillment in the wrong places. So that we might, we might feel awful or not be the person we want to be at the end of the day. But we try and substitute that by achieving lots of things. What I would say is if you're going to have a to-do list... Make your to-be the first item on it and make sure it's the one thing that you click off every day. So that would be the first piece. The second piece would be if you're feeling something, it's okay. No matter what you're feeling, no matter whether it's positive or negative, it's okay. Our brains are having a tough time at the moment. Um, and so when it comes to mental health and anxiety, don't feel bad or don't criticize yourself or don't beat yourself up for feeling something. Mood is our body signal to our brain that we need to change something. And that's the biggest message we can all take away. If you can sense your own mood, whether you're up, whether you're down, it's not about absolutes. It's about relatively, are you up or down versus yesterday? You can figure out what you need to change. That combined with the self-awareness is the secret to, to being a little bit more content a little bit more of the time. Great. Hey, where can people find more about your work that you're doing at Racket? Maybe what you're publishing and putting out there, where would you send them? 
Yeah, so I mean, LinkedIn tends to be the place that, uh, you know, I do a lot of stuff. Um, I've been a little bit quieter just because we've been trying to focus on the internal stuff. But as I say, the last sort of three or four months, I've been getting out doing a lot more speaking, a lot more conferences, and I'll be starting to post a lot more in terms of vlogs and things because I like to be provocative in this space. You know, I think there's a lot of people doing the same stuff and getting the same results, which is not a lot. So I think, you know, the more that we can stimulate and catalyze people to collaborate and work together, the better. So, yeah, catch me on LinkedIn. Um, I've just set up a Twitter account. I've never been on there before. So I'm getting immersed <laughs> in all this. You know, I'll probably have to do, I don't know, what is it, TikTok or something? I bet you're all over that, Chester. You've got some good TikTok stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, LinkedIn's the main one. Yeah. Awesome. Hey, listen, great having you on the show. I just want to point, I point out that uh, Adrian is in Park City. I am in Summit, New Jersey. We actually have an NHL hockey team where I live. <laughs> I'm just going to say, you know, Park City hasn't got an NHL hockey team. Other than that, hey, a delight to have you on the show, Andy. Really, oh, a lot it's been of fun. great, guys. I've really enjoyed it. Well, another amazing podcast, just Andy Holmes from Reckitt, Chief Wellness Officer. Um, and also, you know, heck of a fun and engaging guy. I love what he started talking about, that this idea of, you know, people who do not feel fulfilled are not, do not have the capacity to succeed, that we don't sometimes think about that. It's, uh, you know, often we're just thinking about, do you have the skills? Do you have the, the, the mental strength to do this? But are we putting it all together? Are we creating an environment where people can succeed? Well, and, and he's very good about bringing it back to the business results, right? Uh, how does this really talk about performance? He also talked about being patient, that it's going to take a while for that to, to come about. I loved his to-be list. You know, I'm big on to-do lists. I love this idea of who do you want to be at the end of the day? Yeah. And do you want to be fulfilled do you, or do you want to be exhausted? Do you want to feel accomplished or do you want to feel undernourished? I thought that was a great takeaway for me. It was. I also like the, you know, as leaders, we have a duty of care to our employees. And we have to realize that, you know, some days we're going to have a balance. If we have a balanced team mental health, some days people are up, some days some people are down. And that's okay. We, we've got to allow that. We've got to realize we're all human. And what makes us unique is that we are, don't have the same cortisol, you know, surging through our bodies at the same levels. Yeah. You know, he put in perspective for me in a really interesting way. You know, we often talk about all differences and we kind of think, oh, old guys, old. We grew up in a fairly stable environment. We grew up in a fairly stable environment. Like you said, you know, we felt safe. We felt like we were going to progress. The younger generation has grown up in a state of fear and uncertainty. And that's what's causing the big dis disconnect. And then he built it around networks. You know, uh, older generations, we found how to get things done. And when lockdown came and isolation came, that network could nourish and s sustain us, whereas younger generations don't have that kind of stability. That, to me, was an incredible insight. Well, and we spoke about it, of course, a lot in our book, Anxiety at Work. We wrote about this idea because when we interviewed younger people, we heard this over and over, right, that, and that you oldies don't really understand the stresses we feel. Now, again, it's a generation that grew up with a lot more fear. They watched mom and dad get laid off from jobs, so jobs weren't secure anymore. They watched, you know, mom and dad be fearful of their future. They watched, I mean, they got put through, you know, active shooter drills and all these right. scary right. things. 
Uh, also, they get to the workplace and they realize that all these huge, you know, salaried, fancy jobs weren't there for them. So you're right. So what he's saying is, yeah, I love what he's saying is that we're in a different place and we tend to pull the strings from a position of comfort and control. And we have to realize, I, we had a, one of our senior leaders, if you remember, we were working with, he said, went to his people at the beginning of this pandemic and said, folks, we're all in this together. And he said, after listening, listening to my people for a couple of weeks, I came back and I went, we're not in this together. No. <laughs> yeah. You have way different experiences. You know, you're trying to have little kids at home. Uh, you're trying to get them into school. You're crammed in little apartments. We have big houses. We're empty nesters. We're not in this together. But we can listen and we can understand and we can help. Yeah. My, my last takeaway, I loved his, one of the two things you want to remember is self-awareness and self-insight. You know, and, and to your point, it's okay just to be. You know, whatever you're going through, just be that. And have that self-awareness and, and self-insight. Well, as always, special thanks to our wonderful producer, Brent Klein, to Christy Lawrence, who gets all our amazing guests for us, and to all of uh, those of you who've given us your time and, and are listening in. We really appreciate it. We, we certainly do, especially if you download it. That helps us uh, build up this amazing network we're, we're starting to build. We want to thank our sponsor, Life Guides, a peer-to-peer community that helps people navigate through their day-to-day stressors by providing a guide who has walked in your shoes, a mate as Andy said. <laughs> so go to lifeguides.com slash, slash schedule com, or hyphen a hyphen demo and add the code healthy2021 and you get two months of free service. Why wouldn't you try that? Yeah, I love it when you say schedule in, in deference to our friend from the UK and our friends at Go Happy Hub. You know, really a remarkable platform. Everybody wants to engage their employees. They want to communicate in effective ways. And, and that's exactly what Go Happy does. You know, it's messaging to your frontline employees with a 95% open rate. They don't use an app. They use texts. You know, you can communicate gratitude, logistical updates, uh, referral opportunities, LTO, new hires for your teams and on and on. And again, if you say, hey, Adrian sent you or Chester sent you, you get a 60-day free trial. Check it out. That's Go Happy Hub. Well, thanks everybody for joining us today. Hopefully you have a great week of mental health and we are here in this community to bring you ideas and tips and hopefully make your day better. You bet. Take care. Be happy. Be well.